Wow, Faith Church family, thank you so much this morning for the rich and meaningful time of lifting our voices together to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, What a blessed time to hear your voices lifting our praises to the Lord. That was a blessing this morning. In contrast to rich and meaningful, one of the greatest wastes of my time ever (laughs) was when I spent time watching the TV series Lost. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Each episode of that series, if you remember, seemed to develop new and intriguing events with the passengers of Oceanic Airlines Flight 815, which crashed into a mysterious island. And uh, we began to ask questions when we were watching that episode or those episodes of what was the mysterious smoke monster, or what was the significance of the recurring numbers, or what was the Dharma initiative, and who really were Ben Linus and John Locke? You know, in the final sixth season, fans of Lost were waiting with bated breath to unravel every mystery that was introduced in the first five seasons. The finale came, and do you remember what we got? (laughs) Those of you who watched it, uh, no explanation for the smoke monster, no understanding of the repeated numbers, or no tying up any of the myriad of loose ends there. You know, fans were left frustrated and scratching their heads and disillusioned. It was as if if the creators of that show had been winging it each week with uh, no rhyme or reason toward a compelling conclusion of the story. You know, the joke was certainly on the fans for investing six seasons of Lost, hoping that the writers were intentionally leading that story somewhere. But I had a question for you. You know, in a secular world where there theoretically is no God, why should we expect a march toward resolution and meaning and in, in our stories of life, right? Isn't it foolish for us to expect some kind of a master planner bringing order and purpose out of chaos? You know, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins echoes that. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if, at the bottom, there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but, isn't this hopeful this morning, pitiless indifference. It actually sounds like the plot line of Lost itself. You know, friends, why is Lost, if you, if you haven't watched it, it's not a big deal, but The point is, when there is no meaning or purpose, why is it so dissatisfying? Guys, we we instinctively know that God has not made this life meaningless. There is a plan. You know, in other creative works that we actually find more satisfying. You know, when in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo asked Gandalf how the ring of power came to him, and Gandalf says this, You know, behind that, there was something else at work. Behind any design of the ring maker, I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case, Frodo, you also were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. You know, later, Frodo and Gandalf were dialoguing about Gollum or Smeagol. Um, And Frodo says this, it's a pity that Bilbo did not kill him when he had a chance, and Gandalf rebukes pity. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many um, that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? 
Don't be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends as if there is an end. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet for good or ill before this is all over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the the fate of many. Spoiler alert, that was the case. That was the case at the end. You know, by the end of the Token series, all loose ends were tied up to a very satisfying and meaningful end. That's why Token's works are classics and losses. Well, you forgot about it until I just mentioned it. You know, did we ever doubt, did we ever doubt that along the way that the characters in The Lord of the Rings were choosing their own, using their free exercise of their will as everything was going along to plan as well? You know, Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis in his work, The Silver Chair, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series as well, describes the adventures of Eustace Clarence Scrubs and Jill Pohl. At a point of danger in the book, Eustace and Jill cry out for Aslan, the Christ figure in that series. Aslan the lion comes and says that he has a task for Jill, and that's, that is the reason that he called her. But Jill says with great confusion and explains and reminds Aslan... You don't need to remind the Christ figure of something, but she chooses to. She reminds Aslan that, um, that she called him. So Aslan said, you would have not called me, dear, unless I had been calling you. With those thoughts in mind, please, if you will, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1 on page 150 in the back section of the New Testament and the Bible and chair in front of you. We are continuing our annual series on building on our heritage and the The first part of our series in Ephesians is a mini-series that we have entitled Remembering Our Identity as One in Christ. And today we are opening up, okay, a Pandora's box here. Here's the Pandora's box. You are chosen. Okay, we're talking about about predestination, and yes, we're going there. We're going there today. And before I'm tired and feathered and you run me out of town, may I just remind you of how much your entertainment features chosen ones. Uh, your entertainment features chosen ones. We already mentioned Frodo or Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. How can I not mention Star Wars, right? Anakin, you were the chosen one. Harry Potter, the boy that lived, neither can live while the other one survives. The Lego movie, the special, if you remember that. The Terminator, Sarah Connor, will give birth to the chosen one. The Hunger Games with Katniss Everdeen. All right, here's a classic, Kung Fu, Panda, and Poe, okay? (laughs) I mean, can't you just imagine folks over Starbucks arguing whether Poe had free will or he was predestined? Can't you just imagine that? No, you can't. You can't. We are perfectly content with an outworking of what was meant to be at the same time riveted by wondering what the characters will choose in their own responsibilities in these stories. However, when it comes to us, we somehow are not content. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my fate. God is my co-pilot. So now, turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to give a second introduction here, kind of like a second breakfast here, but... Let me talk to us about predestination preparation here. A couple of things here. Number one, Ephesians 1 is all about God's work in salvation, and Ephesians 2 can actually, it might be viewed as salvation from man's perspective from a certain point of view. Last week, Pastor Wetterland quoted Pastor John MacArthur saying that in Ephesians 1, 
Ephesians 1 is one long sentence in the Greek that can be divided into three sections with each one, each of those sections focusing on a different member of the Trinity. Pastor Wetterlin shared that with us last week. So in summary, chapter 1 of Ephesians is all about God's work from God's perspective. When we get to chapter 2, famous verse, by grace you are saved. So it focuses on, in one sense, from man's perspective and viewpoint of human responsibility and exercising faith. So how does one reconcile God's sovereignty and the salvation that man has in regard to exercising his, his responsibility to have faith? How do we reconcile that? What do you say? We don't. Well, I'll say it if you want. We don't. Those things exist, exist side by side, actually, in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. When Charles Spurgeon was asked about reconcile, reconciling God's sovereignty and human responsibility, he has claimed to have said, I could not actually track this down directly to him, but he was quoted in a book as saying this, you don't reconcile friends, human responsibility and God's sovereignty. The second predestination preparation for us as we begin to talk about the text here is Scripture cannot be read without encountering this teaching regularly. I did not take long to search for the following Scriptures, but it won't take you long before you read Scriptures that you'll see that this is everywhere in Scriptures. For example, starting in Genesis, the Lord said to Rachel about her twins, two nations are in your womb and the older shall serve the younger. There is a choice by God in that for Samuel chapter 16, talking about David, thus David's father, Jesse, made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? And Jesse said, no, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. So he sent and brought him in, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him. Chose him. Okay. John six thirty six. all that the Father gives me will come to me. Um, John fifteen sixteen. you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's where C.S. Lewis got that quote in uh, the silver chair. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. <laughs> if this doesn't disturb you in some way, disturb you, shouldn't disturb you, but catches your attention. As many as had been appointed, believed. Going on, one of your favorite verses ever, and it's just filled with it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, we'll talk about that word in just a little bit. He also predestined, predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. He, those he called, he justified. And these he justified, he also glorified. If that's not enough... First Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, knowing, brethren, but you are God's choice. And what we studied last year, you may not have caught it, maybe we didn't emphasize it last year in this same way. In First Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, who are chosen. Everyone, if you will, please say chosen. Chosen. According to, notice the threefold emphasis on the Trinity here, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. They're all there as well. Okay. The third predestination preparation before we read Ephesians chapter 1 here is, I'm going to say this, and it's, it uh, may, I'm not, it's a strong statement, and it's meant to be grace 
meaning and purpose in life, and God's sovereign plan are all dependent upon this topic. Without, I'm going to say this strongly, without predestination, there is no grace. I will show you that, and I want you to consider it. If there is meaning and purpose in life, then there must be a sovereign God orchestrating it all. You, you, if you saw a lost, it was as if there was no rhyme or reason before. There was no master author, and there was no meaning in that series. And if there is, at the end of time, the consummation and the tying up of all the loose ends, there has to be a sovereign God behind it. Early church father Augustine engaged in a confrontation with a group of people later known as the Pelagians who believed that God's choice was that God peered somehow into the future and knew those who would have the sense or the wisdom or the moral capacity to choose him. So God seeing their choice in the in foreknowledge, then God chooses them, so to speak, based upon their choosing of him. In fact, Augustine had committed the very same error earlier in his life. Augustine said this, I was in a similar error, thinking that faith whereby, whereby we believed on God is not God's gift, but that it is in us from ourselves. For I did not think that faith was preceded by God's grace, but that we should consent when the gospel was preached to us, I thought was our own doing and came to us from ourselves. I had not very carefully sought, nor had I yet found, and here's what he found, what is the nature of election of grace? Predestination, his understanding of that changed him, and then he understood it was all about grace. Augustine, during this doctrinal controversy, as doctrinal controversies have a way of clarifying and distilling what actually is true. And Augustine, during the doctrinal controversy, came to the bold conclusion that, I mean, this is bold, predestination must be preached because that's God's true grace. That is the grace which is not given according to our merits, but may, but may be maintained with insuperable defense, unassailable defense. Now, with those two thoughts, those two introductions in mind, now that you've had two breakfasts this morning, let's read portions of Ephesians chapter 1 and observe this. It's all over there. Number one, that God chooses. Number one, that God chooses But we're not just talking about choosing for the sake of choosing, but what is the end goal of that? So I'm going to point that out as we read, that God chooses, number one. Number two, what is the end goal? So verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as, number one, he chooses. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's... Number two, what is the end of that? We should be holy and blameless before him. Back to number one, he chooses. In love, he predestined us. Number two, toward what end? To the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According, back to number one, he chooses. To the, to the kind intention of his will. Back to number two, the end of that. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Jump down to verse 11. 
In him also we have attained an inheritance, having been chosen, number one, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after, again, back to number one, the choosing, counsel of his will. Toward what end? Number two, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Jump to verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope, number one, of his calling. What are the riches of, number two, the ends of all of this, the glory of, fascinating, God's inheritance of you, (laughs) the saints. Unlike the series Lost, more like the satisfying series in Tolkien's and Lewis, you know, things that are, things that happen are meant to happen, that there is meaning, and all of it is driving toward an end goal that has a glorious, glorious end. So, folks, the doctrine of God the Father's choosing provides three necessary supports for understanding, rejoicing in, and resting in God's grace. The first necessary support of God's grace is this, predestination is the exercise of God's pure and unconditional love. When our kids were little, you know, my wife set them up on her lap and asked them, Josh and Karis, why do you think I love you? (laughs) You can just imagine all the kids' answers to something like that. The kids in their childlike innocence said the things that we normally think about probably is love. Our kids were saying, hey, you love us, Mommy, because we're cute. <laughs> What's not to love? Okay? You love us because we're good kids. You love us because we're kind to one another. And then Janice, Janet asked them, what do you think it would take for me to stop loving you? And then they said, if we hit one another. And Janice said, okay, like you did yesterday, <laughs> but I still love you today. Then Josh Josh, the same Josh who was up here leading you this morning, said this. Um, Thinking that he had an answer that outsmarted his mama, said this. I know if you would stop loving us if I killed somebody. (laughs) Um, And Janice said, oh, Josh, Josh, that would make me so sad. And I would call the police. And you would be in jail, but I would visit you every day. Do you know why I love you? Because you're mine. And nothing you could ever do will ever change that. You know, what was the kid's concept of love? That we love them, or Janet loved them, because of some quality or behavior that they possessed. Any response to the question, why do you love me, that involves behavior or skills or attributes of the other person, That is a benefit to me. Friends, is that love? Is that love? Say no. Say no. But that's a transaction of merit. That's a quid pro quo. That's what that is. So husbands, okay, when your wife says, why do you love me? Okay, before you answer that, remember the Star Wars line, it's a trap. It's a trap. (laughs) God's pre-choice of his people, God's pre-choice of his people is not some kind of a detached quid pro quo transaction. It's just not. 
You know, there are two textual indicators here that God's choosing before is a mark of his unconditional love. We saw it in the text. I tried to highlight it. Chosen how? Chosen how? In love. There's a choosing, but there's something about that choosing. Chosen in love and also according to the kind intention of his will. All of that says something about God's choosing. Probably no surprise to those who dabble in New Testament Greek that in love comes from the Greek word agape, which is the word most used of God's love for his people. And kind intention describes his intent to do good to his people. Another textual indicator that's not in Ephesians, but I highlighted as I was going through those list of verses there is foreknowledge, intimate knowledge, foreloved. Friends, I don't personally believe that foreknow means foreseen. God certainly sees and knows all. He sees it all. You know, the Greek word here, though, is derived from the same word used as know, know intimately. That can mean intimate knowledge as a husband and wife knows one another. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and Adam knew his wife and they produced a baby out of that, that's intimate knowledge. So again, I don't believe that foreknowledge means God's foresight down through time that sees you choosing him. And so he chooses you based upon your choice of him. God's foreknowledge is better understood as foreloved. A love that is and will be actively shaping the existence of an individual that is his, mine, he says. Like the Lord said to Jeremiah the prophet, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I have for loved you and chosen you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. A love that is and will be actively shaping the existence of that individual. Like David understands about the Lord when he says this and he contemplates how God made him. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained, ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them written yet. I'm showing my age here, but older folks, do you remember that sappy Dan Fogelberg song, um, Longer Than, back in the 1970s? Anybody remember that? Longer than? Maybe if I say a few of the lyrics, you'll remember. Longer than there's been fishes in the ocean. Higher than every bird ever flew. Longer than there's been stars up in the heavens. Can you finish it? I've been. Nobody. Some of you can finish it. I've been in love with you. Okay. Man, that's quite the hyperbole, right? Of a human, human romance song, pretty sappy. But with God, before there were fishes in the oceans or stars in the heaven. Indeed, before the foundation of the earth, do you know what? God set his love on his people. Ah, what beautifulness is that. But why? 
Why has he done that? Why has he done that? Is it that God looks into the future and says, look at that one right there. Look at Joe. Have you considered Joe? We got to pick Joe for the God team. You know, because he, 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 here's what's going to happen. In the future, he's going to demonstrate more wisdom than his neighbor in his choice of me. <laughs> and then there's Betty. You know, when she believes, she will also have amazing musical skills for our heavenly choir that we need here on the God team in heaven. Or we got to pick John. You know, John, we don't have as much work to do with him because when he believes, he's already pretty moral anyway. Is that how God chooses? Is that how God chooses? No. Again, any response, any response to the question, why did God choose me in love? That involves your character, your skills, your attributes, your specialness or your ability to choose him first, is not God's love. But that's a transaction of merit. That's a quid pro quo. And once you have that, that destroys grace. That's no longer grace. Scriptures declares this. Why did God choose you? Why did God set his love on you? Here is what Scripture says. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession. And by the way, that same possession two weeks ago when I talked to you about what that, his own possession and you are saints, crown jewel right there, same concept. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own crown jewel. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, that the, and the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because something was in you that was special. You're not greater in number than any other people's, but because the Lord loved you. So he loved you. Why? Because he loved you and kept the oath which he swore to his forefathers. So why did God love us? Why has God loved us? Because, number one, he is love, and that's what he does. He loved us because he loved us. Predestination, then, It is inescapably this. Predestination is the basis or the support or the pillar or the foundation for pure, unconditional love and God's grace toward his people. Okay? Secondly, secondly, predestination is the basis for meaningful purpose of a growing and changing life. There is meaning to all of this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we don't focus on predestination in order to just focus on the fact that he chooses and he's got all kinds of power. There's there's an end toward all of this, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Two weeks ago when I spoke to you about the sermon or the topic of you are saints, I mentioned the word saint, that is from the same term holy ones, means set apart. That's the same term that is in our text here. You have been set apart you, that you would be holy and blameless before him. God setting you apart for something gives meaning and direction to our lives. We are not in random chaos like lost. Furthermore, I also developed in that same sermon that the saints were his special possession, his treasure, or the term that I use again, I'll refer to crown jewel. And Paul actually alludes to that concept 
and a verse that we read in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory of, this is fascinating, of God's inheritance in the saints. We know that God has an inheritance for us, but did you know that we are God's, we, God's people, are his inheritance? You may say, wow, (laughs) I could think of a much better inheritance than us, (laughs) right? Doesn't he want a better inheritance than that? But somehow, his people are his. And nothing we have ever done or ever could do or are doing now can change that fact. We are and will be his crown jewels. Please notice the future of all of this as well, the future aspect of this. An inheritance, when does an inheritance come? Is it come now? When does an inheritance come? It comes in the future, right? And when will we be fully holy and blameless? Is it now or is it in the future? Future. If his people will be future tense, fully holy and blameless, and will be someday an inheritance for our God, what does that mean about his choosing of his people initially? Here's what that means. We were not holy and blameless initially. He chose us. He chose us not because we were holy and blameless, but that we might be holy and blameless. His work of grace to make us, his work of grace to make an unholy people and a blameworthy people into holy and blameless Oh, my friends, truly is a miraculous work of grace to put on display as crown jewels. And there is a trophy of grace. So as we kind of put this all together, think about this. I'm synthesizing this um, predestination in the beginning. So when God chooses, that's a choice of grace. Predestination is God's grace filled, loving initial choice. He did not foresee in the future that your, your moral superiority or your ability to have wisdom to choose him. He in grace chose. And then that results in him executing his plan to extend that grace to you at the proper time. So predestination is God's grace-filled, loving choice that results in, at the proper time, extending to his people grace that transforms them from an unholy and blameworthy people unto his holy and blameless people. And here's where I'm driving at. Predestination then is grace upon grace. John 1.16 For all of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Let's push the pause button there for just a moment and apply this. Assuming you are in Christ, then here's what you have received. Oh, friends, you've received grace upon grace. And you are set apart for God's inheritance to be a holy and blameless people. That's your purpose. That's the meaning. That's your purpose Being on God's team, being on God's team as as his chosen means that more and more 
God's grace should be evident in your life, and it should be flowing out of your life more and more into your relationships. So that means our love is to be different than merit-based quid pro quo graceless transactions. Loving others who love you. (laughs) What good is that? Seeking in others what makes you most comfortable. Pursuing from others what might be most profitable to you. You may say, Prince, I don't do that. Okay, let me just give you a couple examples here. You know, we often parent, right, by bribing our kids so that they might behave. And why do we want them to behave? So it's easier for us. So here, just have this and be quiet. (laughs) Transactional love, as opposed to the hard work of disciplining our kids and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Some of us are in difficult marriages, and sometimes we don't want to rock the boat, and therefore a spouse may appease or avoid a husband for for the sake of just keeping the peace, and that's not love. We seek not to rock the boat, not to solve problems in our marriages, so it would be easier for us under the guise of, I'm just loving, trying to keep the peace, instead of speaking the truth in love. If God's people, if as God's people we are not orienting our life around what we have been chosen for, you're, you're chosen to be holy and blameless. If we are not orienting our life around what we have been chosen for, guess what? We are going to have a sense of cosmic schizophrenia, having two identities and one person, and we will and should have a sense of guilt, discontentment, fear, and anxiety until we get that solved. You're chosen for one purpose. If, on the other hand, we have oriented our life around becoming more and more what God has predestined us for, and we are extending God's grace to those disobedient children, that unfair boss, that hard-to-live-with spouse, that slanderer, not because they deserve it. That's not grace. If we're doing all of that, we indeed are growing and loving those who are not loving you or cannot love you, then we will have an unshakable confidence, a sense of purpose and meaning, no disillusionment like the end of lost, and you'll have joy. Why? Because our soul aligns with our purpose, which God has ordained for his people, living blamelessly or growing in that in accordance with grace and unconditional love. You know, for faith, 60 years of existence, that certainly has been a large, it's been largely true of many of you. And I want to thank you for that because we wouldn't be here without this kind of mercy and grace having been extended to God's people and then God's people extending it to others. So thank you for that. And that's certainly how we desire to continue to build upon our heritage this year. Let's excel still more. Finally, the third necessary foundation that predestination supplies for God's grace is this. Predestination is a satisfying explanation of God's plan for the ages. You know, in Paul's exuberance, in Paul's exuberance resulting in the longest run-on sentence ever known to man in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul excitedly gives the game away. (laughs) So he spoils the end game so that everybody knows the last chapter of mankind's history book. He reveals 
that redemptive history has a coherent plot line. Unlike Lost, there will be no scratching of heads wondering, was there meaning and purpose in all of this? Was everything that happened simply randomly insignificant? Where is the satisfying end? You know, the master author of mankind's history has so designed that all the loose ends will culminate satisfyingly in spotlighting and magnifying the most glorious aspect of the character of God. Oh, and here it is, His grace. What does Ephesians 1 tell us? Why, what's the end of all of this? To the praise and the glory of His grace. To the praise and the glory of His grace. Please notice, it's not to the praise and the glory of His wrath, although that we will see His wrath, not believers, but the world will see His wrath. But the history of redemption is moving to the praise and the glory of His grace. Not to the praise and the glory of his ability to spin galaxies in his hands, although that's fascinating, but to the praise and the glory of his grace, grace upon grace, with his people as the one and only exhibit as his crown jewels, shining like the stars for all to see. And this was predetermined by God's choice before the foundation of the earth to be the coherent plot line of redemptive history. Now, friends, we live in a culture where we love choice, right? We just do. And sometimes we love it so much we have so many choices and then we get immobilized because we can't choose. (laughs) We live in a culture that values choice almost above everything else. And we also get upset when we don't have choice. Just go to uh, your restaurant, and when they say, I'm out of the thing that you ordered, how frustrated you get. We even have an ungodly and immoral philosophy that has adopted the name pro-choice. As a modern and rich people, we love our choices. But what does all of our angst and theological debates over God's choosing reveal? Okay, we love our choices, we love our choices, but then we, then we get angst over God's choosing. What does it reveal? Here's what it reveals, that we begrudge God for what we love ourselves, the ability to choose. Friends, that's another, none other than our human hubris and pride. Furthermore, in, begrud- in begrudging God his choice, If we do that, you are still in your sins and without hope. And here's why. Here's why. If there was no choice of you, his people, if you are his people, then there was no choice of another before you that would be the basis for extending that grace. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, he was, say it with you will, say it with me if you will, that word, foreknown. Same word that we've been talking about as well. He was foreknown, foreloved before the foundation of the world. God did not just foresee his son, but God the Father knew him intimately. And God the Father chose the one whom he foreloved. 
the one residing in his own bosom. He chose his own son so that then he might choose a people to have the grace that his son secured. And in so doing, we have grace upon grace. If there is no predeterminated choice, there is no grace upon grace found in the chosen one, Jesus Christ. If you are here today and do not know Jesus as the chosen one, as the gift of God's grace for God's people, you may be wondering this. A logical question here. Am I chosen? Am I chosen? Let me just say this. If you are sick physically and there is a cure and you say, I will never ever take that cure and you die in your sickness then guess what? You are predestined to die from that sickness. But right now, if you know that you are sick and there is a cure, and you say, I'm going to take that medicine, and you do, guess what? You are predestined to live. You are chosen. So friends, right now, if you are sensing the work of God in your life, the Holy Spirit's conviction, any kind of movement there that you are sensing, Take the gospel medicine now by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ as your only hope of salvation. And you're chosen. And you're chosen. Believers, let me just give you a few applications here as well. Rightly understood, the doctrine of predestination is a doctrine of grace upon grace. And as Augustine said, it must be preached and understood, not as an end to itself, but unto its end, grace upon grace. From beginning to the end. And thus, the doctrine of predestination rightly understood should result in something like this. Unbounded thanksgiving and praise. The reason for Paul's run-on sentence, praise be to the Lord. Number two, humility. God chose me. What a cosmic joke. (laughs) What a cosmic joke that he chose any of us. We cannot take ourselves so seriously as if God got lucky when he picked me. (laughs) Unconditional love. If he extended unconditional love to me and he's calling me to be un he's calling me to be holy and blameless, that's my purpose to extend that kind of non merit based favor to others. And folks, this should result in this as well. Repentance from any divisive self righteousness, as if I'm all of that, because we're not. He did not choose us because we're special in some way. He he loved us because he loved us. Oh, and friends, confidence and eternal security. His people are his, and they are a secure inheritance. And finally, passionate outreach. You say, how does this result in passionate outreach? Enthralled by God's grace, we cannot help. We cannot help, but in our knowledge of his great grace, tell others. Yes, he will save whom he chooses, but the promise remains that he will save any who call upon his name. Josiah Condor wrote a hymn, Lord, tis not that I did choose you, that I know could never be, for this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. You remove the sin that stained me, cleansing me to be your own. For, that, for this purpose you ordained me, that I should live for you alone. It was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind. Else the world had yet enthralled me to your heavenly glories blind. Now I worship none above you. For your grace alone I thirst. 
knowing well that if I love you, you, O Father, loved me first. Let's pray. Father, will you help us to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth of your love in Christ Jesus that surpasses our knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of you and what you're moving all of history toward. The praise and the glory of your grace. And Father, may these applications that we've talked about be extended in our lives um, to have that kind of love that you loved us with for others that you are calling as well. Father, make this true in your people. In Christ's name, amen.